Okay, welcome to Don't Call It Nothing, the podcast dedicated to the lost history of 90s roots, rap, and rock and roll. I'm your host, Lance Davis, and today we're going back to 1992. But first, I want to give shout-outs to two people who just joined the Don't Call It Nothing family. The first is Mike Nolan, proud Oregon duck, gourds enthusiast, and Richmond Fontaine completist. I see you, good sir. Also, much love to Mike Manson, who is definitely not regretting his move from San Francisco to Austin. You know, those cool evenings, brisk walks in North Beach. Who needs that stuff when you have the surface of the sun at your disposal? No, seriously, thank you, gentlemen. You are seen. If you, dear listener, want to support DIY Musicology at the $5, or $50 a month level, go to don'tcallitnothing.squarespace.com. Or just go straight to buymeacoffee.com slash pantsfuchsias and sign up. Okay, so last week I finally saw The Punk Singer, Cine Anderson's 2013 documentary about Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill, La Tigra, and The Julie Ruin. Actually, that's not quite accurate. I saw it for the first time last week. I saw it for the second time a day later because I had the 48-hour rental from Amazon, so why not? And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I watched it again uh, earlier yesterday morning. And good God, Lemon, what a movie. What a life. I'm so impressed by Kathleen's uh, evolution and her all things considered normality. She's totally relatable. She's funny and sympathetic, empathetic. And a couple moments really, really resonated with me that echo in spirit some of the things I've been saying here on the podcast. The first is a quote from Tammy Ray Carland, who is currently provost of California College of the Arts up in the Bay Area, but in the late 80s was a student at Evergreen State College in Olympia with Kathleen. And so they were friends. They started an art museum together called Reco Muse, started a band together called Amy Carter, and then Carla later did artwork for Bikini Kill. So very politically motivated, very feminist, which is where the first quote comes into play. Tammy Ray says, A very clear memory I have of Kathleen is her showing me a copy of a copy of an article from Time magazine. Is feminism dead? We both got really emotional. It couldn't be dead because we were living it. We were doing it, thinking it, and feeling it. How could it be dead? End quote. That issue was published on June 29, 1998, and featured from left to right on the cover... Susan B. Anthony, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, and Allie McBeal. Not Callista Flockhart, the actress who played Allie McBeal. No, the time cover specifically says Allie McBeal. So I'm sure as Flockhart waded through the hate mail and angry emails from long-since-discarded AOL accounts blaming her for killing feminism, She just chuckled to herself, Oh, you guys, this is a total misunderstanding. You're going to laugh when I tell you that I'm not actually the person on the time cover. Anyway, think about the time cover from Hannah's perspective. She had spent nearly a decade touring her ass off, fighting the good fight in dingy-ass bars and clubs, youth centers, ballrooms, college campuses, in front of the goddamn U.S. Capitol spreading the gospel to and for women and girls when there was no cultural incentive to do so. The band's notoriety throughout the decade certainly helped spike their fan base, but 
there was a dark side to that notoriety in that Kathleen's outspokenness invited vicious attacks by mediocre dudes feeling threatened, and sometimes Courtney Love. But men would intimidate, harass, talk shit, try and take upskirt pics near the stage. And do you think she had Metallica's security crew to help her out? Okay, she was tough. And yes, there was safety in numbers to a degree. The punk singer makes this clear that there was definitely a collective mentality. But these were still combustible, potentially dangerous environments, especially for a woman. And that kind of constant hostility is eventually going to break you down emotionally and physically. So to have time basically say, oh, that's cute that you were in a band, but the adults in the room now, we're talking about real feminism. Little pat on the head. I mean, that's a fucking kick to the crotch, right? So that leads me to the other quote. And it's near the end of the movie. And Kathleen says, I just think there's a certain assumption that when a man tells the truth, it's the truth. And when as a woman, I go to tell the truth, I feel like I have to negotiate the way I'll be perceived. Like there's always suspicion around a woman's truth. The idea that you're exaggerating, that there's this whole fear that I'm going to finally have fucking stepped to the plate and told the truth and someone's going to say, uh, I don't think so. Kathleen is absolutely talking about patriarchy here, but... Both of these quotes illustrate a separate but equal glass ceiling that everyone in the 90s ran up against. No matter how fucking hard you were working to figure out who you were and expressing yourself artistically, it was never enough. Gloria Steinem? Now she did it right. That's how you act like a rebel girl. I'm afraid Kathleen's quote-unquote stripper antics aren't going to cut it. Gen X might be the first generation to be criticized for not rebelling correctly, Oh, you think that's nonconformity? That's nothing. Abby Hoffman once shit his pants to protest the Vietnam War. Sure, he was in a Howard Johnson's, but it was the symbolism that mattered. Riot Girl was as anti-establishment as anything in the 60s rock malescape, but Bikini Kill's limited musicality was weaponized against the band, as if Hannah's deeply personal lyrics couldn't possibly be taken seriously if they didn't even take their music seriously. Never mind our previous conversation that when dudes talk up the Stooges, their limited musicality is a virtue. Dude, 1969's only two chords, brah, punk rock! But when women are involved, oh no, that's a bridge too far. Toby Vale evolved into a seriously bitchin' drummer by the time Reject All-American was released in 1996. But Bikini Kill improving and evolving isn't an interesting story. What is an interesting story? Glad you asked. A week or so ago, I wrote about HBO's upcoming Woodstock 99 documentary. Uh, correction, six-part documentary. HBO wants it both ways. They want to critique shitty white boy rap rock culture while giving it a multi-part platform. I like that the punk singer comments on the festival. It addresses Woodstock 99 and then it moves on. Why? Because watching the punk singer is an implicit criticism of the festival. It's an implicit criticism of shithead white boy rap rock. And it's obviously an implicit and explicit criticism of idiot dude culture slash patriarchy. Why do we need to give this nothing burger six fucking parts? I'm sure Cindy Anderson would have loved the marketing budget of HBO's dumb documentary. You're ranting. I'm not ranting. 
HBO gives it six parts for the same reason Bikini Kill became a media fetish totem for a spell in the early 90s. Trauma porn. It's a curious mutation of objectification because press coverage can code sympathetic. But like an uncle who stares a little too long at somewhere he shouldn't, the members of Bikini Kill started feeling like journalists were at best exploiting their past trauma for circulation numbers, what we now call clickbait, and at worst getting off on their stories of sexual assault, hence their semi-famous media blackout. And what's the common denominator in the blackout in my discussion points? These women weren't being taken seriously. As polemicists, as survivors, as victims, maybe. But as musicians and artists, they were, and still are, in many respects, virtually invisible. What did Tammy Rae Carlin say when she saw that odious time cover? We were doing it, thinking it, and feeling it. How could it be dead? What kind of comments do you think we get?
That was Bikini Kill Live at the Sanctuary Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 4th, 1992. That is not on an album, but go to Bandcamp and the entire Bikini Kill discography is on there. Uh, the Julie Ruin, Kathleen's band after La Tigra, is also on Bandcamp. La Tigra itself is not, but I'm pretty sure those albums are still pretty available. I guess what I'm saying is Kathleen Hanna is a goddamn national treasure. She's the electropunk Dolly Parton, not some colorful footnote. Can we get some respect for this woman? was Huggy Bear, Bikini Kills, British Allies in Gender Politics and Punk Rock Righteousness, February 14th. That's the final track on the Bikini Kill Huggy Bear split LP that was released on Kill Rock Stars in 1992. The Bikini Kill side was Yeah, 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 and as I said before, you can find that on Bandcamp. The Huggy Bear side was called Our Troubled Youth, and good luck finding that these days. In fact, the entire Huggy Bear catalog is sadly out of print and will cost you a decent chunk of change on the used market. This is too bad because their songs, as you just heard, are also primally intense and a little advanced musically compared to early Bikini Kill. Back in 2015, a writer from Alabama named Matt Kessler wrote a fantastic essay that ran in Pitchfork. Searching for Huggy Bear, colon, Riot Girl, and Queerness in the American South. I'll link to it in my transcript, but here's an excerpt that I think puts the band's value into a proper socio-political context. 
He writes about discovering the band in 1995 from a mixtape given to him by his friend Aaron. You don't get much more 90s than that. Suck on that, boomers. Uh, hey guys, let's smoke grass and listen to my mama's and papa's soundtrack. In stereo. Lame. Kessler writes, I'd heard about Riot Girl that summer on MTV. Courtney Love had socked Riot Girl Kathleen Hanna in the face at Lollapalooza. That's how MTV's Kurt Loder described her. Riot Girl Kathleen Hanna. MTV treated Riot Girl like a cutesy coven of witches. Dangerous, but too frivolous to be taken seriously. Riot Girl, I was told, happened in Seattle, Portland, Olympia, Washington, D.C., and Minneapolis. According to the older boys in my high school, it was a bunch of girls, quote, singing about their periods. And Birmingham punks, Birmingham, Alabama, that is, not England, Birmingham punks were, quote-unquote, too smart for that. Supposedly, a couple of riot girls had tied a boy to a tree and sucked his dick till he started bleeding. This was the lore. Aaron's mixtape was my first exposure to Riot Girl, my initiation. I was so curious about what girl rage sounded like, but MTV only showcased major label bands, and the internet was not yet a proper place for music. Anything underground required an enlightened elder passing you a tape, a zine, or a flyer. The band at the end of side A and the beginning of side B sounded different than the other Riot Girl bands on the tape. The singers had English accents. The songs were more militant, violent even. Being gay had never sounded so punk, and being punk had never sounded so tough. Who was this mysterious English Riot Girl band of witches and fag boys? And again, that's Matt Kessler, searching for Huggy Bear, Riot Girl, and Queerness in the American South. Pitchfork, September 28, 2015. By the way, did you notice the obsession with blood from the older boys at Kessler's high school? Riot Girl was songs about periods, and Riot Girls supposedly punish boys by sucking their dicks until they bleed? What? Is it any surprise we have dumbasses now talking about Jewish space lasers? Here's an idea. Shut your mouth.
That was The Mummies with Shut Your Mouth, a track from their only LP, Never Been Caught. They called it budget rock. How awesome is that? Stripped down to maybe three-chord rock and roll with Larry Winther spitting out brief, gnarly guitar solos, Russell Kwan's drums spilling into the mix, and Trent Ruane's vocals in the red. This is a band who actually dressed up as mummies on stage and so loathed the concept of clean audio production that they refused to release their records on CD until early 21st century classic. I love these guys. Needless to say, this album is not on Spotify, and if you want to buy a copy of Never Been Caught, it's going to set you back a few bills. The album is about half originals, Shut Your Mouth is one, and half covers. Of the covers, my favorites are Shot Down by the Sonics, a massive influence on the band, Justine by Don and Dewey, and This Bad Mamma Jamma, surprise package for Mr. Minio, cover of Supercharger, fellow contemporaries of the primitive. Again, that's the Mummies covering San Francisco's Supercharger, another band whose catalog is way out of print and costly. I wanted to play them because they put the lie to the idea that the White Stripes brought rock back to the garage in the late 90s. Nah, badass garage rockers existed all along. The gatekeepers just weren't paying attention. You don't have to be a riot girl to subscribe to this podcast, but it might help. Please go visit the Don't Call It Nothing Facebook page and website, don'tcallitnothing.squarespace.com. Like, comment, become a member, tell your mama, and tell a friend. Talk to you next time when we go back to 1993.